This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus attacks on healthcare are on the rise. Are you ready? A little hip education and want to make a cool $5 million? This is episode seven. Bring in the music. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawashtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, we're going to kick this show off the same way we kick every other show off, Patch Tuesday update. There are... No patch Tuesdays yet for Microsoft in the month of December. Uh, so no real news to report on that front. Firefox did release an update, Firefox 71. It addresses a few uh, mo- uh, vulnerabilities, uh, nothing severe, nothing critical, So, um, but still get your Firefox updated. If you listen to the Cybersecurity Daily, you would have heard a conversation we had about uh, a vulnerability with AVG and Avast, the browser plugins for both of those in Chrome and Firefox. Firefox has disabled that that uh, plugin, so make sure you update your browser. All right, first up in the news, bleepingcomputer.com. Microsoft starts forced feature updates on Windows 10 18.09. So this is an older version of Windows 10. If you have not updated, you're going to be. Microsoft says that Windows 10 1909 feature updates will start automatically installing on Windows 10 1809 devices beginning today. So that is yesterday, December 5th. To smooth out the update process to a more recent Windows 10 version, beginning today we will slowly start the phase process to automatically initiate a feature update for devices running the October 2018 update, Windows 10 version 1809 home and pro editions, keeping those devices supported and receiving the monthly updates that are critical to device security and ecosystem health, Microsoft says. We're starting this rollout process several months in advance of the end of service date to provide adequate time for a smooth update process to company ads on the Windows 10 health dashboard. So uh, you will, uh, so no updates for Windows 10, 18.09 after May 12, 2020. So you will, if you're on 18.09, be forced to update. Uh, I know I've had a few computers experience issues with more recent updates to Windows 10. So was hopefully those issues have been ironed out and we won't see any of that. Also of note, Windows 10 18.03 device auto updated in November. Um, so that probably will not be supported anymore going forward. We have... On Forbes, I don't usually go to Forbes for cybersecurity, but this is um, kind of um, relevant. China fires Great Cannon cyber weapon at the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement. The Great Cannon of China doesn't get fired very often, but when it does, the consequences for wherever it is aimed at can be hard-hitting. Operating from behind the Great Firewall of China and used sparingly as the negative press it generates is substantial. This cannon doesn't launch physical projectiles but cyber ones. It's a state-operated distributed denial-of-service cyber weapon and now has taken aim at an online forum used by pro-democracy movement protesters in Hong Kong to help coordinate their anti-government demonstrations. So what is the Great Cannon of China? While not as well known as the Low Orbit Ion Cannon, a DDoS tool, 
put to very effective use by the anonymous hacking group when attacking websites supporting the Church of Scientology and later those opposed to WikiLeaks, the Great Canon has the potential to be a much more significant threat. It works by hijacking web traffic from users within the boundaries of the government-controlled Great Firewall of China and redirecting that traffic to websites external to it. This is achieved by injecting malicious JavaScript code into the insecure HTTP connections of sites visited by Chinese users. These interception allows, this interception allows the operators of the cyber weapon to target a chosen web resource with a DDoS attack. And that DDoS attack would be aimed at a form used by the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. So uh, interesting that a government can... I shouldn't say can, of course, the governments have have the ability to, but they are using it against their own people. Um, on ComputerWeekly.com, another source I don't normally go to, but hackers prime to explore 5G to Wi-Fi handover flaws. So we know 5G, is, 5G LTE is starting to roll out in some areas, more densely populated areas, primarily with 5G networks rapidly coming on stream. Wireless carriers are increasingly handing off calls and data to Wi-Fi networks to save bandwidth, and flaws in this process will allow attack hackers to compromise security, say researchers at WatchGuard Technologies Threat Lab. Interestingly enough, I used to work for a cable provider who tried to, to tried to launch a, a cellular service using their Wi-Fi um, hotspots throughout the area that we were in. The researchers believe attackers will find new vulnerabilities to access voice and data on 5G mobile phones that will be introduced across networks. WatchGuard also predicts that in 2020, a quarter of all breaches will happen outside the perimeter. It adds that although remote working can increase employee productivity and reduce burnout, mobile staff often work without any network perimeter security and mobile devices can make mask telltale signs of phishing attacks and other security threats. As 5G rolls out across large public areas like hotels, shopping centers, and airports, users' voice and data information on their cellular-enabled devices is communicated to both cell towers as well as Wi-Fi access points. So that you know, if you're hopping from a cell tower to a, wi a, a an open Wi-Fi access point, there that opens up the chances of you being compromised. Um, so. I don't know. I'd probably turn that feature off if that's an option. I don't know if it will be um, because it sounds like the cellular companies are concerned about bandwidth. On the Hacker News, Europol shuts down over 30,500 piracy websites in global operations. So Europol has been quite busy. You might remember they shut down a, um, a hacking group last week. So in a coordinated global law enforcement operation, Europol has taken down more than 30,500 websites for distributing counterfeit and pirated items over the Internet and arrested three subjects. Among other things, the seized domains reportedly offered various counterfeit goods and pirated products and services, including pirated movies, illegal television streaming, music, electronics, cracked software downloads, counterfeit pharmaceuticals, and other illicit products. However, it should be noted that the seized web domains do not include any major pirate websites on the Internet. So the pirate bays of the world have been spared at this point. During the investigation, international law enforcement officials shut down a total of 30,506 web domains, arrested three suspects, seized 26,000 luxury clothes and perfumes, seized 363 liters of alcoholic beverages, and seized an unspecific amount or number of hardware devices. So very interesting stuff. The officials also identified and froze more than 150,000 
uh, euros, I guess that is, from several bank accounts and online payment platforms. Do domains were seized and arrests were made as part of an ongoing anti-piracy effort dubbed in, in Our Sites X, iOS X for short, that Europol launched in 2014 and ran with the help of European Union member and states international law enforcement. Um, so Europol, very busy so far in the last month or so. A, I reported this on the Cybersecurity Daily this morning. I'll report it again here because it's pretty cool. On Threat Post, HackerOne breach leads to $20,000 bounty reward. $20,000 bounty reward. So HackerOne was uh, a HackerOne uh, blue hat hacker that participates in HackerOne website under the alias of Hackster 404OK00. So that's Hackster 4OK00. Uh, found a flaw as a result of human error. So what happened was HackerOne triages incoming reports for HackerOne's own bug body program. According to HackerOne's report on November 24th, 2019, a HackerOne security analyst tried to reproduce his submission to HackerOne's program, which failed. The security analyst replied to the hacker accidentally, including one of their own valid session cookies. So then that hacker was... Uh, um, able to use that session cookie and show a flaw in the HackerOne platform. Uh, and as a result, HackerOne paid out $20,000. So um, I talked about it a few weeks ago, how you there are millionaires now using HackerOne and similar, similar platforms. So they're called Blue Hat Hackers. We do a, a little bit here. I don't uh, participate as often as I'd like due to time constraints. Um, so I'm not a millionaire by any stretch. Um, with that being said, you can, if you, and HackerOne actually has tutorials. So you can learn how to do this, get on that website and make some, some money. So no excuse not to make a little extra money on the side there, uh, including $20,000 if you figure something out by accident. Well, first of many HIPAA-type stories we're going to talk about today, also on Threat Post, Nebraska Medicine Breached by Rogue Employee. So an employee or an ex-employee of Nebraska Medicine had access to EPHI that they should not have had access to. They grabbed or uh, they they at least viewed social security numbers and uh, PII and medical records and so forth of some people, an undisclosed number of people between July 11th, 2018 and October 1st, 2019. Um, so when we're reporting HIPAA breaches, typically it uh, revolves around phishing, ransomware, data theft, so forth. This is an employee having unauthorized access. Um, this is access controls and not following the uh, the least privilege theory of least privilege. Privilege. I'll learn how to talk today. Um, so. This will be interesting to see what the outcome is because they're not disclosing how many people they did disclose. They did report as soon as they were became aware. They reported notified affected patients, um, and those patients are receiving credit monitoring services. It does not say how many people were impacted. This was just uh, reported to the media, is which is also what we're going to talk about today going to have a little HIPAA education today about breach notification rules um, specific to Connecticut as well. So this was reported to the media two days ago. 
December 4th. So if you are a patient at Nebraska Medicine, which includes a hospital, where is the name, Nebraska Medical Center, you're going to want to pay attention to that. All right, that's going to do it for the news flash. Next up, top stories of the week. All right, we got a couple of HIPAA-related news items to talk about, um, but we're going to first talk about how you can make a cool $5 million, and that's tongue-in-cheek, of course. Um, this is on bleepingcomputer.com, but you can pretty much find it anywhere on the Internet at this point. U.S. government alerts financial services of ongoing Drydex malware attacks. The Department of Homeland Security today alerted institutions from the financial services sector of risks stemming from ongoing Drydex malware attacks targeting private sector financial firms through phishing email spam campaigns. The alert was published by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency system via the U.S. National Cyber Awareness System, a tool designed to provide industry and users with info on current security topics and threats. So if you go to, to their website, us-cert, you'll see more information there as well. Because actors using Drydex malware and its derivatives continue to target the financial services sector, including financial institutions and customers, the techniques, tactics, and procedures contained in this report warrant renewed attention, CISA says. Treasury and CISA encourages network security specialists to incorporate these indicators into existing Drydex-related network defense capabilities and planning. The alert issued today also comes with a list of previously unreported indicators of compromise derived from information reported to FinCEN by financial companies. Mitigation measures and reporting malware activity, besides encouraging security admins to configure their company's defense tools to detect Drydex banking trojan activity and avoid potential attacks, CISA also provides a list of mitigation measures to reduce risks. According to CISA, the mitigation recommendations listed below are designed to specifically address Drydex tactics, techniques, and procedures. So here we go. It's a big list. So ensuring systems are set by default to prevent execution of macros, which we've talked about in the past. Inform and educate employees on the appearance of phishing messages, especially those used by hackers for distribution of malware in the past. So education of employees. I am big on that and it needs to happen. Update intrusion, detection, and prevention systems frequently to ensure latest variants of malware and downloaders are included. Conduct regular backup of data, ensuring backups are protected from potential ransomware attack. Another big one. Exercise employees' response to phishing messages and authorized intrusions. So along with the education comes testing. If there is any doubt about message validity, validity, sorry, call, call and confirm the message with the sender using a number or email address already on file. Treasury insists to remind users and administrators to use the following best practice to strengthen the security posture of their organization's systems, maintain up-to-date antivirus signatures and engines, keep operating system patches up to date, disable file and printer sharing services if these services are required, use strong passwords or active directory authentication, Restrict users' ability permissions to install and run unwanted software applications. Do not add users to local admin group unless required. Enforce a strong password policy and require regular password exchanges or changes. Sorry. 
Um, and we've talked ad nauseum about password policies. Exercise caution when opening email attachments, even if the attachment is expected and the sender appears to be known. Enable a personal firewall on workstations and configure to deny unsolicited connection requests. Disable unnecessary services on agency workstations and service servers. Scan for and remove suspicious email attachments. Ensure the scanned attachments attachment is its true file type, i.e. the extension matches the file header. Monitor users' web browsing habits restrict access to sites with unfavorable content. Exercise caution when using removable removable media. Um, some companies will disable USB ports, um, and so that's a good practice to have. If there's no need for a USB port, then disable them. Scan all software downloaded from the Internet before executing. Maintain situational awareness of the latest threats. Implement appropriate access control lists. Sound familiar? Exercise cybersecurity procedures and continuity of operation plans to enhance and maintain ability to respond during and following a cyber incident. The DHS also encourages organizations and users that have affected, been affected in a Drydex banker attack or suspect malicious activity related to Drydex to contact CISA or the FBI as soon as possible using the following contact information. So that's below. You have CISA is uh, CISA service desk at hq.dhs.gov or 888-282-0870. FBI through local field office, which can be found on fbi.gov site. And FBI cyber division, division which is SciWatch at fbi.gov or 855-292-3937. The Drydex Banking Trojan Drydex is an advanced and modular banking Trojan first spotted in 2014 and continuously updated with just samples still being detected in campaigns targeted, targeting a wide array of targets from Europe and North America, as CISA also warned today. Modules include provisions for capturing screenshots, acting as a virtual machine, or incorporating the victim machine into a botnet, CISA states. Through its history and development, Drydex has used several exploits and methods for execution, including the modification of directory files, using system recovery to escalate privileges, and modification of firewall rules to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer communication for extraction of data. The malware's main use is to steal banking credentials, and it has been attributed to TA505 Threat Group, aka Evil Group, known to have been active since third quarter 2014. TA505 is also known for mainly focused on attacking retail companies and financial institutions using large-size malicious spam campaigns launched using the Nukers Necker's botnet. The hacking group's mouse spam campaigns have been observed while distributing remote access trojans, rats, and malware download downloaders that dropped the Drydex and trick banking trojans as secondary payloads as well as Locky, BitPamer, and Jeff Jaff ransomware on their target's computers. Since its initial appearance on the malware stage, Drydex authors have upgraded with the very advanced functions like atom bombing injection technique, web injects into Chrome and Microsoft zero-day exploit, according to malware analysis service any.run. More information on the capabilities of Drydex malware and a list of indicators of compromise associated with the activity described in the alert published today by the DHS are available on CISA's report. And then there's links to download that report there. But the reason I say you can make a cool $5 million is because there is now a bounty on the people that created this, they are Russian. Here we go. I'll tell you right now. 
So FBI puts $5 million bounty on Russian hackers behind Drydex banking malware. So if you want to drive over to Russia, I'm joking. I know you can't drive. Uh, but hop over to Russia and um, help capture these guys. The United States Department of Justice today disclosed the identities of two Russian hackers and charged them for developing and distributing the Drydex banking charging using which the duo stole more than $100 million over a period of 10 years. So the names are Maxim Yakubitz, the leader of Evil Corp Hacking Group, and his co-conspirator Igor Toroshev, primarily distributed Drydex, also known as Bogat and Crydex, through multi-million email campaigns and targeted numerous organizations around the world. So these two guys are now wanted and now have a $5 million bounty on their head. Um, you know, could have put the $5 million into educating and securing the banking infrastructure. But instead, we're going to put a bounty on these guys' heads. Chances are there's more people behind them. So I don't know what good that'll do, except somebody will get $5 million. So if you're interested in grabbing $5 million, go look for those two guys in Russia. Good luck. All right, next up. Um, I reported this earlier this week in a Cybersecurity Daily, but I want to talk about it again because it's really important. On HIPAAJournal.com, healthcare threat detections up 45% in third quarter and 60% higher than 2018. So cyber attacks on healthcare organizations have increased frequency and severity in the past year, according to recently published research from Malwarebytes. So Malwarebytes is a credible uh, anti-malware company. And it's a go-to tool from a lot of uh, IT people. In its latest report, Cybercrime Tactics and Techniques to 2019 State of Healthcare, Malwarebytes offers insights into the main threats that have plagued the healthcare industry over the past year and explains how hackers are penetrating the defenses of healthcare organizations to gain access to sensitive healthcare data. So cyber attacks are on healthcare organizations can have severe consequences, as we all know. As we've seen on several occasions this year, Attacks can cause severe disruption to day-to-day operations at hospitals, often resulting in delays in healthcare provision. In at least two cases, cyber attacks have resulted in healthcare organizations permanently closing their doors. Um, I only know of one. There's one in Michigan where the healthcare provider closed instead of dealing with the ransom and the fallout. And a recent study has shown that cyber attacks contribute to an increase in heart attack mortality rates, even though the attacks can cause considerable harm to patients' attacks are increasing in frequency and severity. So I have talked about in the daily the attack on an MSP that impacted, um, I don't remember, a large number of uh, nursing homes. Uh, and so now the, the concern is the, the care of the patients in those nursing homes. Malwarebytes data shows the healthcare industry was the seventh most targeted industry sector from October 2018 to September 2019. But if the current attack trends continue, it is likely to to be placed even higher next year. So I don't know what the top seven are. I'm sure banking is is probably near the top, financial banking. Um, Healthcare organizations are an attractive target for cyber criminals as they store a large volume of valuable data in EHRs, which is combined in many cases, with the lack of sophisticated security model. I mean, it's not really sophisticated. Set up multi-factor authentication. Let's start there. Healthcare organizations also have a large attack surface to defend with large numbers of endpoints and other vulnerable network devices. Given the relatively poor defenses and high value of healthcare data on the black market, 
also known as the, the dark web, it is no surprise that the industry is so heavily targeted. <coughs> Excuse me. Detection of threats on healthcare endpoints were up 45% in quarter three of this year, increasing from 14,000 detections to uh, in quarter two to 20,000 in quarter three. Now, that's detections. That's, that's not actual breaches. That just means that, you know, th there was a detection of an attack, a potential attack. Threat detections are also up 60% in the first three quarters of 2019 compared to all of 2018. And so 2019, the, the second half of 2019 has definitely seen a lot more activity. So I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the year we're, we're doubled last year. Many of the detections in 2019 were Trojans, notably Emotet in early 2019, followed by TrickBot um, in, in third quarter. So here you go, TrickBot again. I just talked about that with the uh, Drydex. Um, TrickBot is a, another banking Trojan, and it is currently the biggest malware threat in the healthcare industry. Overall, Trojan detections were up 82% in quarter three from quarter two in 2019. These Trojans give attackers access to sensitive data, but also download secondary malware payloads such as the Ryuk ransomware. And we've heard a lot about Ryuk. So we saw the Mexican oil company got hit with Ryuk. I believe that was last week. Once data has been stolen, ransomware is often deployed. Now, data has been stolen. So there, have, there hasn't been a large number of this type of activity where the attacker, the ransom demand person, attacker, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I don't like to use the word hacker because hacker has a negative connotation and it shouldn't um, because a hacker really is just someone who takes something apart to see how, how it works. That's really all a hacker is. Um, so they might do it for good. Hackers are on Hacker One. We talked about earlier. Those are also hackers. They're doing good. They're they're helping to strengthen the infrastructure of a web application. Um, but hackers can also be bad. So it's like anything else in this world. You have good. You have bad. Now, um, so the what we what we saw one case, and I think there was one other case recently where the attacker is taking the data before they launch the ransomware. So then they launch the ransomware, the ransomware. This encrypts all the files. They, they say, I want this much money to decrypt the files. And if you refuse, I'm going to release that data on the internet. And in one case, they've proven they do have the data um, and then increase the ransom after the, ref the first refusal. So I don't know what the status of that is yet. I have to get back to you probably Monday on that. But we're going to see more of that where the attackers will threaten to release the data to the internet. To, to the public internet um, if you don't pony up. Now, again, paying the ransom doesn't guarantee that you're going to get your files decrypted and doesn't guarantee that they still won't release the information, but the hacker in that case has gone on files saying, we don't care about the data, we just want the money. Now, take that as you will. I never recommend that you pay the ransom. Um, paying the ransom makes you a target again and again and again and again. So, don't pay the ransom. Be prepared for the ransomware attack instead. Trojan attacks tend to be concentrated on industry sectors with large number of endpoints and less sophisticated security measures, such as education. We've seen that this year. The government, we've seen that this year in healthcare. Trojans are primarily spread through phishing and social engineering attacks, exploits of vulnerabilities on unpatched systems, and as a result of system misconfigurations. Trojans are by far the biggest threat, but there have also been increases in detections of hijackers, which were up 98% in third quarter. Riskware detections increased by 85%. Adware detections were up by 34%. And 
and ransomware detections increased by 15%. Malwarebytes identified three key attack vectors that have been exploited in a major majority of the attackers, a majority of the attacks on the healthcare industry in the past year. Those are phishing, negligence, uh, you know, like not having multi-factor authentication or not having complex passwords, and third-party supplier vulnerabilities. Due to the high volume of email communications between healthcare organizations, doctors, and other healthcare staff, emails, one of the main attack vectors, and phishing attacks are rife. Email accounts also contain a considerable amount of sensitive data, all of which can be accessed following response to phishing email. This should not be the case. There should not be sensitive data in email. Um, we should be using the EHRs and the EMRs to circumvent having this data in an email. These attacks are easy to perform as they require no code or hacking skills. Preventing phishing attacks is one of the key challenges faced by healthcare organizations. It is very easy to launch a phishing attack. Um, maybe one day I'll, I'll show you how easy it is. The continued use of legacy systems that are often unsupported is also making attacks far too easy. Unfortunately, upgrading those systems is difficult and expensive, and some machines are devices and devices cannot be upgraded. That's primarily the, the machines, not the computers themselves. The problem is likely to get worse with support for Windows 7 coming to an end in January 2020. The slow rate of patching is why Malwarebytes is still detecting WannaCry ransomware infections in the healthcare industry. Many organizations have still not patched the SMB vulnerability that WannaCry exploits, which is just crazy to me, even though a patch was released in March of 2017, so almost three years ago, and we're still not patched. It's That's crazy to me. Um, get rid of Windows 7, guys. So I know that what you can, through Microsoft, you can extend the support license. It's really not worth it. Just, just I think I saw... I think I saw $50. I don't know if that was $50 a month or a one-time $50 payment. But, you know, for $100, you can upgrade. $100-something. Um, and in some cases, you don't have to pay at all to upgrade to Windows 10. Negligence is a is also a key problem, often caused by the failure to prioritize cybersecurity at all levels of, of the organization and provide appropriate cybersecurity training to employees, training, education, again and again and again. Malwarebytes notes that investment in cybersecurity is increasing, but it often doesn't extend to bringing in new IT staff and providing security awareness training. As long as an unsupported legacy systems remain unpatched and IT departments lack the appropriate resources to address vulnerabilities and provide end-user cybersecurity training, cyber attacks will continue and the healthcare industry will continue to experience high number of data breaches, and it's exactly what's going to happen. The situation could also get a lot worse before it gets better. Malwarebytes warns that new innovations such as cloud-based biometrics, genetic research, advances in prosthetics, and proliferation of the use of IoT devices for collecting healthcare information will broaden the attack surface even further. That will make it even harder for healthcare organizations to prevent cyber attacks. It is essential for these new technologies to have security baked into the design and, and implementation of or vulnerabilities will be found and exploited. So... It's kind of a grim outlook on the healthcare sector as it comes to threats, cyber threats. Uh, and then finally, um, HIPAA compliance can help covered entities prevent, mitigate, and recover from ransomware attacks. This is also on the HIPAA journal. So I decided with this episode to do a, a more focus on HIPAA um, because it does relate to cybersecurity. So it, it, it is important. And, and Nuage Tech does provide compliance um, 
consulting and uh, in the case of healthcare, we do HIPAA audits and security audits. Uh, so this is on HIPAAjournal.com as well. Ransomware attacks used to be conducted indiscriminately with file encrypting software, most commonly distributed in mass spam email campaigns. However, since 2017, ransomware attacks have become far more targeted. It is now common for cyber criminals to select targets to attack where there is a higher than average probability of a ransom being paid as well as a bigger ransom. Um, you know, I, I've seen ransomware attacks going back, I don't know now, a number of years. A CPA friend of mine was hit a while back and their backup solution was a um, external hard drive attached by USB. And of course that drive was also encrypted and there was really nothing they could do. They, and this was right before the end of tax season that year. And so they um, they were uh, at a loss at that point. Um, I know of extended family members that had ransomware on the family computer and were ready to pay to ransom. Unfortunately for them, they checked with me first, but this was going back a number of years again, probably close to 10 years. Um, so ransomware has been around. It's only more recently that they've started targeting organizations and businesses because they realize organizations and businesses have the resources to pay up if, if there's no other option. So healthcare providers are a prime target for cyber criminals. They have large quantities of sensitive data, low tolerance for system downtime, and high data availability requir requirements. So as we're seeing with the, the MSP that was compromised and subsequently all of their clients, which were all nursing homes, uh, attacked, um, and hit with ransomware, those nursing homes are down and unable, in some cases, unable to care for patients because they don't have the patient documentation at that point. And then the ransom demand is $14 million. Now, nobody is able to pay that $14 million. We don't know what the outcome will be yet, but you can, um, the, the devastation that will be left by that ransomware attack is, is pretty substantial. Um, with attacks increasing in severity and frequency, healthcare organizations need to ensure that their networks are well defended and they have policies and procedures in place to ensure a quick response in the event of an attack. So policies and procedures like um, strong passwords, multi-factor authentication, education, phishing education, phishing prevention, uh, using, uh, using militia, um, Antivirus software, I don't really call it antivirus security software, that uh, instead of signature-based is more anomaly-based, uh, things like that, because uh, I'm preventing unauthorized uh, executables, macros, and things like that from running. These are the types of things that need to happen. Ransomware attacks are increasing in sophistication, and new tactics and techniques are constantly being developed by cyber criminals to infiltrate networks and deploy ransomware, but the majority of attacks still use tried-and-true methods to deliver the ransomware payload. The most common methods of gaining access to healthcare networks is still phishing and exploitation of, in the exploitation of vulnerabilities such as flaws that have not been patched in applications and operating systems. By finding and correcting vulnerabilities and improving defenses against phishing, healthcare providers will be able to block all but the most sophisticated and determined attackers and keep their networks secure and operational. Now, so if you're doing all of that and then so you can't stop the the most sophisticated and, um, you know, most sophisticated and organized cyber threats. 
you still have mitigation. So there's still the business continuity disaster recovery software that exists that can have you back up and running in no time. There's still preventing access to file servers and so forth, EHR records without, there's ways to, to slow it even more. And those steps are not being taken. I can tell you, I mean, it's just insane to me that a, an organization would choose to shut down rather than have a business continuity in place. In its fall 2019 cybersecurity newsletter, the Department of Health and Human Services explains that it is possible to prevent most ransomware attacks through the proper implementation of HIPAA security rule provisions. Through HIPAA compliance, healthcare organizations will also be able to ensure that in an event of a ransomware attack, they will be able to recover in the shortest possible time frame. There are several provisions of the HIPAA security rule that are relevant to protecting, mitigating, protecting, mitigating, and recovering from ransomware attacks. Six of the most important being. Now, before I get into those six, um, we're going to talk about the security rule in a future episode. So, just just be on the lookout for that episode. But here's the six most important things. Risk analysis. So this is actually uh, mandatory. You have to have a cyber, you have to have a security risk analysis. A risk analysis is one of the most important provisions of the HIPAA security rule. It allows healthcare organizations to identify threats to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of EPHI. So we call that the CIA triad. Uh, And EPHI is um, electronic protected healthcare information which allows those threats to be mitigated. Ransomware is commonly introduced through the exploitation of technical vulnerabilities, such as unsecured open ports, outdated software, and poor access management provisioning. It is essential that all possible attack vectors and vulnerabilities are identified. Risk management. All risk identified during the risk analysis must be managed and reduced to a low and acceptable level. There is no foolproof way to prevent an attack. However, you can reduce that risk significantly if steps are taken. That will make it much harder for attackers to succeed. Risk management includes the deployment of anti-malware software, intrusion detection systems, spam filters, web filters, and robust backup systems. If you ever talk to an IT consultant and they say that they can 100% prevent an attack, don't do business because they cannot. It's not possible. But you can significantly reduce your exposure. Information system activity review. If an organization's defenses are breached and hackers gain access to devices and information systems, intrusions need to be quickly detected. By conducting information system activity reviews, healthcare organizations can detect anomalous activity and take steps to contain attacks in progress. Ransomware is not always deployed as soon as network access is gained. It may be days, weeks, or even months, and we have seen that where uh, I think in one case, the, the attacker hung around for a year and a half uh, after a network is compromised, before ransomware is deployed, so a system activity review may detect a compromise before the attackers are able to deploy ransomware. Security information and event management solutions can be useful for conducting activity reviews and automating the analysis of activity logs. Some of the other things that will help mitigate that are a password policy that requires password changes every you know 30, 45 days, something along those lines. Um, I know people hate that, but if you if, if that's in place, then anybody who may be in using a compromised password will then be out. Um, <clears throat> security awareness and training. Phishing attacks are often effective as the tar- as they target employees who are one of the weakest links in the security chain. 
I think that was one of the first blog posts I ever wrote on the Wash Tech site, the, that your employees are the weakest link. Through regular security awareness training, employees will learn how to identify phishing emails and mouse spam and respond appropriately by reporting the threats to a security team. Security incident procedures. In the event of an attack, a fast response can greatly limit the damage caused by ransomware. Written policies and procedures are required, and these must be disseminated to all appropriate workforce members so they know exactly how to respond in the event of an attack. Security procedures should also be tested to ensure they would be effective in the event of a security breach. And then a contingency plan. A contingency plan must be developed to ensure that in the event of a ransomware attack, critical services can continue and the EPHI can be recovered. That means that backups must be made of all PHI. Covered entities must also test those backups to ensure that data can be recovered. Backup systems have been targeted by ransomware threat attackers, threat actors to make it harder for covered entities to recover without paying the ransom. So at least one copy of backup should be stored securely on a non-networked device or isolated system. So there's um, somewhat of an introduction to the security rule. Hopefully that helps some of your healthcare providers, um, but we can't fall asleep at the wheel. You need to you need to act on these things, and this this starts at the one person practice. Uh, I I am working with a one person healthcare professional who uh, had zero HIPAA in place, and so we're working to remedy that. And they're even today are in a lot better position than they were just a couple of weeks ago. So. Um, that's going to do it for this section of our podcast. I'm introducing a new section shortly, the HIPAA education. So stay tuned. All right, before we get to your HIPAA education, where we're going to talk about the breach notification rule, the latest in HIPAA Roundup, HIPAA Breach News. So just reported today, Southeastern Minnesota Oral and max, Maxillofacial Surgery Ransomware Attack Impacts 80,000 Patients. Southeastern Minnesota Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, try to say that, Jesus, has announced it has been attacked with ransomware and that the protected healthcare information of up to 80,000 patients was potentially compromised in the attack. The attack was detected on September 23, 2019. The IT team responded and isolated the affected server and took steps to restore the encrypted data. It is unclear whether the ransom was paid or if the IT team was able to restore the server from backups. Assisted by computer forensics experts, uh, we're going to call it SEMOMS, S-E-M-O-M-S, determined that the affected server contained names and, uh, x and x-ray images and that the server had been accessed by an unauthorized individual. No evidence, no evidence was uncovered to suggest any patient information was accessed or exfiltrated by the attackers, but the possibility of unauthorized EPHI access and data theft could not be discounted. Consequently, notification letters have been sent to all individuals whose protected health information was potentially compromised. Healthcare administrative partners, phishing attack impacts 17,693 patients. Um, so good news that they did, uh, respond to it quickly, resolved quickly and notified impacted people quickly. Yesterday, Kalispell regional healthcare sued over 130,000 record data breach. Kalispell regional healthcare in Montana is being sued over a phishing attack in which hackers gained access to employee email. 
accounts contain the protected health information of almost 130,000 patients. The compromised email accounts contain patient information such as names, contact information, medical bill account numbers, medical histories, and health insurance information. Approximately 250 individual, individuals also had their social security number exposed. The phishing attack occurred in May 2019, but it was not initially clear which, if any, patients had been affected. It took until August for forensic investigators to determine that patient information had potentially been compromised. All affected patients were notified, and health systems offered 12 months of free credit monitoring and identity theft protection services to patients whose social security numbers had potentially been compromised. One of the patients whose personal and health information was compromised has now taken legal action over the data breach. So this is another, um, another, another avenue where healthcare providers need to to be aware that not having proper HIPAA rules in place, HIPAA um, programs in place, could cost you more money. So you know you're looking at a, a potential fine from the OCR, and now you're being sued. Nebraska Medicine was reported on December 4th. I already talked about that earlier. Solara Medical, also on December 4th, Solara Medical Supplies sued over 114,000 record data breach. So they're also being sued. Solara Medical Supplies is facing legal action over a June 2019 data breach that saw the protected health information of more than 114,000 customers exposed and potentially stolen by an unauthorized individual who gained access to its email system. Solara Medical Supplies, a supplier of medical devices and disposable medical products, discovered the breach on June 28, 2019, while initially believed to be to involve one email account. An investigation revealed several Office 365 email accounts had been compromised for a period of around six weeks, so they hung around in several email accounts. Starting on April 2, 2019, the types of information exposed as a result of the attack include names, addresses, birth dates, employee ID numbers, social security numbers, health insurance information, financial information, credit card, debit card numbers, passport details, state ID numbers, driver's license numbers, password pin on account login information, claims, data billing information, and Medicare, Medicaid IDs. Customers affected by a breach were notified in November. So this is a breach that they discovered in June, took till November. So the breach notification rule, you failed. Um, and you'll learn why in a moment. And finally, the last one this week, phishing attacks announced by Comprehensive Sleep Care Center, McLaren Health Plan, and Ivy Rehab Physical Therapy. I reported these all on the Cybersecurity Daily earlier this week, but so all three of those were compromised by phishing attacks. Um, again, means most likely means that um, you know there's no phishing m- mitigation in place at any of those practices. That's going to do it for the HIPAA Roundup this week. Um, stay tuned for our hippie education piece. All right, thank you for hanging around. If you're here, then you want to know more about HIPAA and the bre- in this case the breach notification rule. Now, I will tell you that you could go to hhs.gov slash HIPAA and you will get all of the HIPAA education you want for free. Um, I know there are courses that you could take. I know there are books you can buy, but it's all on hhs.gov slash HIPAA. So if you're so inclined, you can hop over there and do a lot of reading. And it is a lot of reading. Um, 
I intend on going forward to include a HIPAA education piece on each and on the weekly podcast every week. This week, we're going to talk about the breach notification rule. The reason I'm bringing up breach notification rules because what I've noticed in the last few months is that a lot of the HIPAA breaches fail when it comes to following the notification rule. The uh, and in one case, the the OCR fined the healthcare provider for for failing to follow the healthcare following the breach notification rule. So it's it's not complicated, um, and I will edit the part about Connecticut in a moment. So in reality, for Connecticut, you're going to end up following the rule as is in place by the government, by by the OCR, by HHS. So all HIPAA, and I'm going to read it from HIPAA Journal only because it's a little more, it's a little easier to understand that it is on hhs.gov. Um, so let's start with all HIPAA-covered entities must familiarize, familiarize themselves with the HIPAA breach notification requirements and develop a breach response plan that can be implemented as soon as the breach of unsecured protected health information is discovered. While most HIPAA-covered entities should understand the the HIPAA breach notification requirements organizations that have yet to experience a data breach may not have a good working knowledge of the requirements of the breach notification rule. Vendors that have only just started serving healthcare clients may similarly be unsure of the reporting requirements and actions that must be taken following a breach. So the um, business associates like myself, uh, a lot of them are not going to be familiar with the breach notification rules. They're not even going to be familiar with HIPAA in general. And where that becomes a problem is if they do, and they probably will because they're not familiar, if they do breach, cause a breach, or in fact breach themselves, um, they're not going to know what to do with that. And in most cases, they probably won't say anything, and that's an even bigger issue. Um, so you're going to want to work with a vendor who is familiar, at least to some degree, with HIPAA. I don't expect an HVAC vendor to be uh, you know, up to, up to their head with, you know, their head filled with HIPAA rules, but they should have some familiarity enough to know that they need a BAA and that if they do somehow come across PHI or P or EPHI, that they know what to do. The issuing notifications following a breach of unencrypted protected health information is, is an important element of HIPAA compliance. The failure to comply with HIPAA breach notification requirements can result and a significant financial penalty, and we have seen this. With this in mind, we have compiled a summary of the HIPAA breach notification requirements for covered entities and their business associates. So again, I'm reading this on um, HIPAAjournal.com. The HIPAA breach notification rule, and then the rule numbers here, requires covered entities and their business associates to report breaches of electronic protected health information and the physical copies of protected health information. So that's the privacy rule and the security rule. Um, a breach is defined as acquisition, access, use, or disclosure of protected health information in a manner not permitted by HIPAA rules. HIPAA breaches include unauthorized access by employees, as well as third parties, improper disclosures, the exposure of protected health information, and ransomware attacks. Exceptions include breaches of secured protected health information, such as encrypted data. So in the case of theft, for example, laptops, thumb drives, which I don't know why you'd have health data on a thumb drive, but if those drives are encrypted, then you're okay, um, and as long as the key is not is not accessible to the person who steals it. Um, 
any unintentional any unintentional acquisition, access, or use of protected health information by a workforce member or a person acting under the authority of the covered entity or a business associate. So, in other words, if I, as the business associate, accidentally view protected health information, um, that does not need to be reported. However, that's assuming that I, as the business associate, don't use it for anything else. So. Um, if such acquisition access or use was made in good faith and within the scope of authority, in other words, I'm, I'm resolving an, an IT issue or I'm even running a HIPAA audit or a HIPAA assessment or a security risk assessment, uh, does not result in further use of disclosure and an inadvertent disclosure by a person who is authorized to access PHI to another member of the workforce at an organization who is authorized to access PHI. When a covered entity or business associate makes a disclosure and has good faith belief that the information could not have been retained by the person to whom it was disclosed, so those are the re those are the scenarios where the breach notification rules are not uh, in play. In the event of a reportable HIPAA breach being experienced, the HIPAA breach notification requirements are notify individuals impacted or potentially impacted by the breach. So you cannot just assume that the 10 people in your email that you think are in your email that has been compromised um, are the only people that could be impacted. You need to notify anybody who could potentially be impacted. That notification needs to be done with a certified written letter within 60 days of the discovery. So what we're seeing a lot of is that the healthcare provider waits until a, a complete assessment is done, a forensics assessment, a forensics um, analysis is completed and then they send the notifications. No, it needs to be 60 days after the discovery of the breach unless a request to delay notifications has been made by law enforcement. So that's um, not doesn't occur often, but it could happen. In such, in such cases, notifications should be sent as soon as that request has expired. While it is permissible to delay reporting of a breach to the HHS for breaches impacting fewer than 500 individuals. Um, so in the case of 500 individuals or less, it is, uh, or actually it's under 500 individuals. So in that case, you need to report 60 days after the end of the calendar year. Um, the HIPAA breach notification requirements for letters, including writing in plain language, which is one of the reasons I'm reading from HIPAA Journal instead, um, the, HIP, the HHS site is, is obviously a little more legalistic, so it's a little harder to understand explaining what has happened, what information has been exposed, stolen, providing a brief explanation of what the covered entity is doing, has done in response to the breach to mitigate that, the harm, providing a summary of the actions that will be taken to prevent future breaches and giving instructions on how breach victims can limit harm. Breach victims should also be provided with a toll-free number to contact the breached entity for further information together with a postal address and an email address. Then you must also notify the HHS. Notifications must be issued to the Secretary of Department of Health and Human Services via the OCR breaching reporting tool. The HIPAA breach notification requirements differ depending on how, how many individuals have been impacted by the breach. So if there is more than 500, the maximum permitted time for issuing the notification to the HHS is 60 days from the discovery of the breach. Um, although breach notices should be issued without unnecessary delay. So the language used to say, um, in a reasonable amount of time. So they now instead of saying reasonable amount of time, because some people think reasonable amount of time is months or years, 
uh, they say you have up to 60 days, but sh you shouldn't really use the 60 days. In this case of breaches impacting fewer than 500 individuals, HIPAA breach notification requirements are for, are for notifications to be issued to the HHS within 60 days of the end of the calendar year in which the breach w was discovered. Notify the media, so you're not off the hook yet. HIPAA, HIPAA breach notification requirements include using a notice to the media, issuing a notice to the media. Many covered entities that have experienced a breach of protected health information notify the HHS, relevant state attorneys general, and patients and health plan members impacted by the breach but fail to issue a media notice, a violation of the HIPAA breach notification rule. So simply not reporting to the media could violate you. Um and apparently that happens quite often. A breach of unsecured protected health information impacting more than 500 in individuals must be reported to a prominent media outlet, to prominent media outlets in the states and jurisdictions where the breach victims reside. This is an important requirement as up-to-date contact information may not be held on all breach victims. So in other words, if we may not, your healthcare provider may not have the most up-to-date contact information for your patient um, and I would imagine and, and this is probably why they always you know every six months I'm asked to update my information even if it hasn't changed um, by notifying the media will help to ensure that all breach victims are made aware of the potential exposure of sensitive information as with the notifications to the HHS and breach victims the media notification must be issued within 60 days of the discovery of the breach Post a substitute breach notice on the homepage of breach entity's website in the event that up-to-date contact information is not held on 10 or more individuals, so it's not that many, that have been impacted by the breach, the covered entity is required to upload a substitute breach notice to their website and link to the notice from the homepage. So I checked. Now, I don't know if if um, the, the uh, healthcare provider did not have up-to-date contact information on 10 or more individuals, but I checked a recent breach here in Connecticut and they did not have this on their homepage. The link to the breach notice should be displayed prominently and should remain on the website for a period of 90 consecutive days. In cases where fewer than 10 individuals contact information is not up-to-date, alternative means can be used for the substitute notice, such as written notice or notification by telephone. Data breaches experienced by HIPAA business associates. So, yes, business associates, you're not off the hook. Business associates of HIPAA-covered entities must also comply with the HIPAA breach notification requirements and can be fined directly by the HHS, as I'm sure we're going to see in the case of the MSP who was compromised and then their clients, all nursing homes, subsequently compromised. Um and state's attorney general for a HIPAA breach notification rule violation. Any breach of unsecured protected health information must be reported to the covered entity within 60 days of the discovery of the breach. While this is the absolute deadline, business associates must not delay notification unnecessarily because remember this covered entity who will have to report, most likely will have to report, and I'll get to that in a second, um, also has 60 days. While this is the absolute deadline, businesses must not delay notification unnecessarily. Unnecessarily delaying notification is a violation of the HIPAA breach notification rule. So in other words, you need to report immediately. It is usually the covered entity that will issue breach notifications to affected individuals. So any breach notification will need to be accompanied with details of the individuals impacted. It is a good practice to issue a breach notification to a covered entity rapidly and to provide further information on the individuals impacted once the 
investigation has been completed. Under the terms of the HIPAA-compliant business associate agreement, a business associate may be required to issue breach notifications to affected individuals. So more than likely, it's the covered entity, but a business associate may be required to do so. Timeline for issuing breach notifications. Breach notifications should be issued as soon as possible and no later than 60 days after the discovery of the breach, except when a delay is requested by law enforcement. Investigating a breach of protected health information can take some time, but once all the necessary information has been obtained to allow breach notifications to be sent, they should be mailed. HIPAA-covered entities must not delay sending breach notification letters. It is possible to receive a HIPAA violation penalty for delaying notifications, even if they are sent within 60 days of the discovery of the breach. There have been several recent cases of HIPAA breach notification requirements not being followed within the appropriate time frame, which can potentially result in financial penalties. State breach notification laws may be stricter. So in Connecticut, it is not stricter. It's actually 90 days in Connecticut, so the exact law is... Uh, notice must be provided to the state attorney general and patients within 90 days, although health care providers are required to issue breach reports within 60 days under HIPAA rules. So that's the Connecticut rule. Um, so you have to follow the 60-day rule in Connecticut. Penalties for violations of HIPAA breach notification requirements. HIPAA-covered entities must ensure HIPAA breach notification requirements are followed or they risk incurring financial penalties from the state attorney general and HH Office for Civil Rights. In 2017, Presence Health became the first HIPAA-covered entity to settle a case with the Office of Civil Rights solely for a HIPAA breach notification rule violation. After it exceeded the 60-day maximum time frame for issued no breach no notification, Presence Health took three months from the discovery of the breach to issue notification. So they took 90 days. So I don't know where Presence Health is, but in Connecticut that would be acceptable, except you have to follow HHS rule. A delay that cost the health system $475,000. The maximum penalty for HIPAA breach notification rule is $1.5 million or more if your delay is more than 12 months. Um, so you could be fined up to $1.5 million. In this case, this presence health system was fined $475,000. Now, depending on the health care provider, that might be a drop in the bucket. But a 10-person pra practice, you know, 10-person meaning you have nurse, you have doctor, you have administrative staff, and so forth. 10-person practice, $475,000 is, is a big chunk of change. Uh, so that's the breach notification rule under HIPAA. Uh, that is the full rule, and that is going to do it for this episode of Proactive IT. And until next week, stay safe, be secure.